All right, open up your Bibles, pull out your Bible apps and open those up. If you do not have a Bible with you, you're going to want one to follow along in today. Um, And if you don't have one, just go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will get you a Bible that you can use to follow along in. And if you are receiving one of those Bibles and you do not currently have a Bible of your own, uh, just keep the one that you receive. Take it with you and dig into it with us as we open God's Word together. Um, This past week, my two older sons interviewed me. Um, on uh, public speaking and what it takes to be a good public speaker. And so I'm going to give you one more piece of advice. Um, If you bring up with you a card that tells you what to do next, like invite the ushers up to take the offering, look at the card. Don't just leave it there in your hand and then walk off and not call the ushers up for offering. Um, Thankfully, you have competent people behind you to do that for you. So (laughs) there are many things I could teach them by bad example about public speaking. Um, I want to thank you, um, church, for uh, your prayers for this fight that I'm having with shingles. Um, I really do appreciate the prayer. And I really do honestly believe that God answers those prayers. Um, I am extremely thankful uh, that this has been as, as mild a case of shingles as it's been. Um, my, my arm is healing really well. Um, the, the lesions have stopped spreading. They're retreating now and healing up and, and I'm feeling better by the day. And so thank you very much. This is not drawing on and on as long as I thought it might. Um, so um, uh, if I do a little fashion faux pas and you see this black sleeve kind of drop out the end during the sermon, that's just because I can't stand anything else on my arm right now. So uh, it's there. It's going to stay there. But I thank you for the prayers. That's, uh, that means a lot. And I really honestly do feel um, that those prayers have been answered. Uh, this could have been a lot worse. And uh, so thank you. All right. Last week. Last week we found ourselves in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples Uh, at a very important point in Jesus' story. They had paused in that room to celebrate the Passover meal, and John, as an author, maybe surprisingly, leaves out the institution of the Lord's Supper, communion, and instead he focuses on Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet. And I think it's interesting that God directed things this way, that it wasn't there in the book of John. Um, Think about how essential communion is to the Christian faith. It's something that we faithfully carry out in remembrance of Jesus. We do it here every month. Yet in John's writing, God directs John to leave it out of the story. There was something else that happened during that meeting in the upper room that God wanted us to see and to learn from. I believe he wants us to see Jesus get down on his knees and wash his disciples' feet. We see Jesus' humility. We see Jesus' model of what he's about to do for his disciples and for every one of us. We see him serving his disciples, the beginnings of the church, his bride. We hear him say, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's guiding them towards his command for them to love each other the way that he has loved them. They're to serve each other. We are to serve each other. We are to be for each other a reminder of Jesus' life, his ministry, his words, his death and resurrection. And so Jesus teaches them there. But more happened in that room. Judas' betrayal took the next step as Satan entered him and Jesus commanded him to go and do what he needed to do. 
Jesus told the disciples that he was going away to a place where they could not come. And Peter learned that no matter how brave he thought he was, he would not be able to lay his life down for Jesus. Yet, there had to be a lot going on in the minds of the disciples. John was close to Jesus for all of it, and he's reeling here from what he's just seen and heard from Jesus. Peter had to be stinging after hearing what he just heard from Jesus. The rest of the disciples are likely this mix of confusion and heartache. They were all troubled, and Jesus begins our next passage by acknowledging that. He saw where they were at. Now, one of them, John, may have been a bit more troubled than the rest of them. Think back to the beginning of this series on the book of John. Do you remember how old we said that John was when he walked with Jesus? He was young. He was a middle schooler, maybe 12 years when he first started following Jesus, and now at this point in the story, maybe 15 years of age. Young. I want to fast forward with you in John to a couple of verses that record one of the things that happened while Jesus was hanging on the cross, and I'll put this on the screen. This is John 19, verses 26 and 27. Jesus is on the cross here. And John writes, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, to John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now John, as a teenager, had become a very close friend of Jesus, so close that Jesus entrusted his own mother to his care when his death was approaching. Jesus had been friend, teacher, Lord, and even father to John for three years, and you have to think that John embraced that fully as a teenager. Now try to imagine John's heart when Jesus says, I'm leaving you and you can't follow me. But imagine John was crushed. And not just John. Each of the disciples had had left everything to follow Jesus. And now here's Jesus saying that he's leaving them. This was not a, a great moment for Jesus' disciples. For John, for Peter, for all of them. Tough moment in their story. And fittingly, the next words out of Jesus' mouth were, let not your hearts be troubled. This morning, we're going to look at John 14, verses 1 through 14. There are at least four significant things that we're going to see happen in these verses. A promise will be made, a truth will be spoken, a revelation will be revisited, and a mind-bender is going to be presented by Jesus. Let's look at this passage together now. John chapter 14 verses 1 through 14. This is Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may, also, you may, you may be also And you know the way to where I'm going. 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right, let's start by looking at what Jesus says in verses 1 to three. He makes his disciples a promise that has been embedded in my mind and in my heart since I was just a little kid. Question, Chapel Hill. What challenge are you facing in your life right now? What challenge are you facing right now? What difficulty is threatening your joy, your hope, your peace? Is it financial? Relational, personal, spiritual, what is it? What's bringing you down? What's holding you back? What's frustrating you, discouraging you, pressuring you? Whatever it is right now, just listen to Jesus. His words here were not reserved for those 12 men way back then. This is what he's telling us. Listen to what he says again in verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Listen, Jesus knows what's troubling us. He sees it all. He understands it all. He can relate to it all. So he tells us, trust my Father. Trust me. My kingdom is a big place. I'm there now preparing your place in my heavenly kingdom. And I'm coming back to get you so that we can be there together forever. Brothers and sisters, hold on to this promise with all your strength. Jesus is preparing a place for you. So, and listen, so stop worrying about preparing a place for yourself here. You have an eternal home waiting for you. 
You'll join Jesus there. And then when Jesus finishes his work of restoring this earth, you and his whole kingdom will come and live here in this perfected place forever. What Jesus wants us to do right now is to lift our eyes above whatever it is we're facing here and focus on our eternal home that's being prepared by him, trusting him to provide all that we need to get through whatever we're facing right now. Let me repeat what I just said. What Jesus wants us to do right now is to lift our eyes above whatever it is we're facing here and focus on our eternal home that's being prepared by him, by Jesus, trusting him to provide all that we need to get through whatever it is we're facing right now. How's that for a promise? I was challenged by something that I read this week regarding our perspective on heaven. And I'm taking this to heart, and I hope that you will too. It has to do with with the things that are keeping us from focusing on our eternal home. And one of those things is pretty easy to spot. It's our attachment to earthly things, to temporary things. That attachment gets unhealthy when it keeps us from fixing our eyes on the eternal. Listen, heaven will not be a loss of earth. But there was another thing mentioned that caught me off guard a bit. Consider this. Another thing that gets in the way of our quest for our eternal home is a wrong perspective on Jesus. It's a wrong perspective on Jesus. Our view of heaven reflects our view of Jesus. If our view of Jesus is limited, our view of heaven is limited. I've done a lot of research on heaven I've read some great books. Um, My understanding of what awaits us is growing constantly, but it falls short in that my study has not dramatically increased my appetite for what lies beyond this life. It's just knowledge. What I've been struck by is this mindset. The more my love for Jesus grows, the more my appetite for heaven grows. Now, why is this a game changer for me? Well, it's, it's simple for me now, and hopefully this will stick. If I spend my life trying to create in myself an appetite for heaven by steadily increasing my understanding of heaven, then I'm going to miss what heaven really is. Heaven is Jesus. Heaven is Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about my place and what that place will look like and what that place will offer me. It's about Jesus Christ. God spoke to us through Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. And this goes back a ways to our study of 1 Peter. This is what he said. He said, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's passing on to the church the same hope that was given by Jesus that day in the upper room before Jesus' crucifixion. God is going to restore us. Jesus is going to renew us. Heaven will be about him. 
To him be the glory. He is our heaven. Jesus is our heaven. When we get there, we'll experience him, not just the quality of our room in his house. We'll get to be with Jesus. That, church, is our eternal goal. The day is coming soon, and I would love it if it was today, when Jesus will bring us home to that eternal home, his eternal kingdom. You know that feeling that you get when you come back home from a long trip, you've been away for a long time, and you're back home? Okay, multiply that by a thousand, and you can barely begin to understand what it's going to feel like when we come home. But it'll feel like that because we'll be face-to-face with Jesus, our home, not because we're going to walk into the hotel room of our dreams. A.W. Tozer, a great Christian author, points us in the right direction. He says this. He says, look to the long tomorrow. Look to the long tomorrow. I love that phrase. Get your eyes off the short today. Look to what's ahead. We will be with Jesus forever. He'll be at the center of our eternity. And the more our love for him grows, the more our appetite for heaven grows. What an encouragement from Jesus. He affirms that encouragement in the verses that follow. Let's look now at verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And here again we find direction for us. Jesus was going to die, rise from the dead, and then return to heaven to be reunited with his father there. But when Thomas asks the legitimate question about where he's going, Jesus doesn't doesn't describe a place or give Thomas directions on how to get there. He explains to Thomas that he is the way. Jesus is the way and the destination. So he shows Thomas that he was wrong. Thomas actually did know the way to where Jesus was going. Thomas knew Jesus. He knew the way. Jesus says, I am the way, not here is the way. Jesus says, I am the truth, not here is the truth. Jesus says, I am the life, not here's how to find life. We don't need to rely on ourselves because Jesus is the way. We don't need to live in uncertainty because Jesus is the truth. We don't need to fear death because Jesus is the life. Jesus, the way, is the path to God. Fellowship with Jesus is a requirement. Jesus is the truth. In him, the truth is summed up and it is impersonated. It is is in him. He is the truth. Jesus is the life, and we've looked at this word already in our study of John. It's the Greek word zoe, and here's what it means. It refers to a life real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed, the portion even in this world of those who put their trust in Christ, but after the resurrection, to be consummated by new accessions, among them a more perfect body, and to last forever. That's life. That's a mouthful, but it tastes great. That's life. That's the life that is Jesus. 
He's not leading us to this life. He is this life. I would imagine this was still very hard for Thomas and the others to grasp. In fact, John wrote that the disciples could not understand what Jesus was saying until after the resurrection. That makes sense. John himself could not grasp it. They just had to trust Jesus at this point. We just have to trust Jesus. Even though, thanks to, the word, uh, thanks to the work of God's Spirit in our lives, we can see a lot more now than they could then, we still can't see it all. And we have to trust Jesus. Then we move on to a revelation revisited. This is verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip now said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And I think Philip spoke for all of them. Jesus refers to himself again as one with the Father. He's in the Father and the Father's in him. They've seen him, so they've seen God. And they had all believed in God. They grew up in a Jewish culture that taught them from the time they were babies about God. The Jews all believed in God. And what Jesus was doing was stretching their belief to the point where they saw that Jesus was God. And that's a very different belief than believing in God, but believing that Jesus was the Messiah sent by God to reclaim Israel's position in the world. They had not yet accepted that the Messiah was God. God came to earth to draw people to himself. Jesus was not going to become an earthly ruler for them. He was God. That was a lot for the minds of the disciples. But Jesus was going to do something incredible to help them see that truth, and we'll get to that next week. The disciples had been given a lot of evidence that Jesus was indeed God. Still, they couldn't see it. Jesus is making a very bold and even offensive declaration here. He stated that he is God and that he is the only way to God. The disciples and the world could not get to God by any other means than through Jesus. Now this has caused a massive amount of division in our world throughout history. But I would dare say for our culture, more division now than ever. Our world is very offended by the declaration that there is only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. So let me address that briefly, because if you haven't seen how much this bothers people in our world, you will. Let me add an interesting perspective from a Bible scholar named F.F. Bruce. Listen to what he says about this. He writes, Jesus is, in fact, the only way by which men and women, women may come to the Father. There is no other way. If this seems offensively exclusive, let it be borne in the mind that the one who makes this claim is the incarnate word, the revealer of the Father. 
If God has no avenue of communication with mankind apart from his word, mankind has no avenue of approach to God apart from that same word who became flesh and dwelt among us in order to supply such an avenue of approach. Jesus declared the truth of the only way to God. It was through him. God declared that Jesus was the only way to God. Remember that when you're challenged on this because I think the world believes that man declares this. That this is man's statement. Christians are blamed for creating this exclusiveness. But the exclusive path to God was declared by God himself. Jesus being God and being the way. There is truly only one way to God and it's through Jesus. Believe, Jesus said. Believe. You have the evidence of Jesus' words spoken with God's authority and his works, the supernatural signs that Jesus has given the world throughout the book of John here. He pointed to this evidence all the way through, everything that we've looked at so far. You've seen it over and over again. Finally, we come to what I see as a mind bender. This is verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, so there were question marks all over this passage for me. We'll do greater things than Jesus did. How many of you would say I've done plenty of greater things than Jesus did? (laughs) Okay, let's start there. No matter how hard I try, I cannot dismiss this statement. Is there really any way that Jesus' disciples throughout history could do greater works than Jesus did? Well, first of all, Jesus is not talking about outdoing him in the miracle category. Let's just get rid of that right now. He raised people from the dead. Are you, how do you outdo that? Well, he did. So he raised himself from the dead. And we're expected to outdo that? No. No. Not talking about that. However, the church is capable of doing greater things ethnically. We have the ability and the opportunity to reach beyond the Jews into the Gentiles from all people groups all over the world. The church is capable of doing greater things numerically. How many millions, maybe billions, have been brought to Jesus through the ministry of Jesus' followers throughout history? The church is capable, through the power of God's Spirit at work through us, of greater things spiritually. Every day, all over this planet, the spiritually dead are being raised. The Great Commission is being fulfilled. Jesus' followers are growing and maturing in their transformation into the likeness of Jesus beyond what we see in the Scriptures. Greater things are being done. So I think I've resolved this aspect enough to remove that question mark. We can do greater things, church. We can. We're called to it. What an incredible privilege. 
And I also put a question mark over Jesus' words about asking anything in his name. So there's a a live-action remake of the movie Aladdin coming out. That's what these verses make me think of. Rub the Jesus lamp, and you get whatever you ask for. Here's some perspective on praying in Jesus' name. We cannot take this lightly. First of all, what was he saying to his disciples in that moment? That's part of this. What was he saying to them right then, at that moment? They had been dependent on Jesus for everything to that point. Even though he was now going to leave them, that dependency would not change. They could still depend on him for everything that they needed, and they would. So can we. So we pray in his name in dependency on Jesus for everything. Then there's this. Praying in Jesus' name means making requests that are consistent with God's will. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom, your kingdom come, what's next? Your will be done. His will. It means acknowledging our poverty. On our own, we are not worthy to receive from God. Jesus makes us worthy. And praying in Jesus' name includes a sincere desire to see God receive the glory. Not us. Uh, Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary to China, said this about his prayers. He says, I used to ask God to help me. Then I asked him if I might help him. Finally, I ended up asking him to do his work in me and through me if he would be so pleased. And he left it at that. We have been invited, church, to pray in Jesus' name. We have not been invited to ask for whatever we want for our own sake. What a passage. I don't fully understand it all, and that's okay. That gives me something to do this week. And Jesus is pointing here to what he's about to tell his disciples and us, and this is big. So be here next Sunday. Let me close with a quote from John MacArthur about these comforting words from Jesus that he spoke in the passage we've looked at today. He writes this. Christ's message of comfort and hope is as applicable today as it was in the upper room two millennia ago. This world is full of false hopes. But apart from the spirit-given assurance of Christ's continuing presence, the confidence that he is preparing a place in heaven, the conviction that he is the only way to God, the realization that he is God incarnate, the recognition of his sustaining power and the certain expectation that he will perfectly fulfill his promises with heavenly supply and regularity, all other sources of comfort and hope are nothing more than broken cisterns that can hold no water. They will ultimately disappoint, whereas Jesus never fails. So Chapel Hill, what do Jesus' words of comfort and hope mean to you? We're being invited to believe and receive the comfort, 
hope and promises offered by Jesus. And so my advice to you here, I'll come and see. He's good on his promises. Come and see Jesus. Come and receive his comfort and his hope are here for you. Come and believe. Just come. Come to the altar as we go to worship again now to close out our service. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. Look to the long tomorrow. Look to Jesus, your hope, your comfort. Look to Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and help us close out this service with worship. Will you pray with me now as they come? God, I want to thank you for the comfort that you have brought me this week through the words that John wrote, your words that were recorded in your book, in the Bible, in your word. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that comfort. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for lifting my eyes above my circumstances. Lifting my head above the temporal, above earthly things to look to the long tomorrow to look to eternity God help us to wrap our minds around the reality that Jesus is preparing a place for us right now to come and join you in your kingdom to to one day return to this earth when Jesus returns, casts out the enemy, restores this earth to perfection, and then we come with your whole kingdom here to this earth where we will live in your presence forever in a world that won't even need the sun because your light will fill it. God, I pray for each and every one who's in this room right now who's facing some sort of challenge in life. Something that's thrown them off. Something that is weighting them down. It's causing them sleepless nights and anxious stomachs and a mind that won't slow down. Burdens that are too heavy for them to carry. Circumstances that are discouraging, disappointing, frustrating. I pray, Lord, that right now you will lift their eyes to see the hope and comfort and promise that you've given us through Jesus. God, we can see that things went crazy for the disciples at this point. There's so much going on. In the midst of it, Jesus says, I'm going away. You can't come with me. Thank you, Father, that we can come with Jesus. That we get to go with him. That he will lead us to you. He's led us to you. He's in us. His spirit is in us. We know the way. We know the truth. We know the life.
God, help us to live in the reality of that hope, of that comfort, that promise, every moment of every day. For those who are struggling, Lord, to receive your hope, your comfort, your promise, I pray that right now, as we come before you to praise and worship you, that their spirits would open up and receive what you have to offer them. Give us that comfort. Give us that hope. Remind us that you're good on all your promises. We come to you now. We come to the altar to receive what you have for us. Thank you for this gift. We receive it with gratitude in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.